0: This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io and Rejects Galactic Wrestling.
1: Hey folks, on this episode of Speaking of Bitcoin, we're handing over the mic to correspondent George Frankly as we revisit one of the earliest examples of Bitcoin-like technology far before it was technology with some new lessons. Hello there, I'm George Franklin, and I'm going to take a look at how even the best and brightest people can make truly stupid decisions and terrible predictions, and what we can learn from them. This is Dare to be Stupid. At least, this is usually Dare to be Stupid. Sometimes making bad decisions isn't a product of anyone being willfully stupid or obtuse. Sometimes, something forces your hand, and you have to play by somebody else's rules. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'd actually like to talk about a bit of ancient history my first produced audio content for the artists formerly known as Let's Talk Bitcoin. About ten years ago, I did an edutainment piece about the island of stone money. The giant stone coins of Yap happened to be a potent allegory and teaching tool for the basic premise of decentralized currency. And I'm going to strain my arm a little patting myself on the back. I hit the stone bitcoins hot take a good six years before it became the go-to filler story for every pop science feed, so go me. Except, I think I missed some things. And in light of the modern state of things, I think the story carries a few more lessons than I originally saw. So, please, come with me as I return to the island of stone bitcoins. Let's reintroduce the setting of the story. Out in the Pacific Ocean, in what's now known as Micronesia, lies the Yap Islands. This small chain of inhabited islands has become infamous for a unique twist in their cultural history. It's... why am I beating around the bush here? It's stone money. It's money that is stone. Made of stone. Stone money made of stone, and less you already know the whole story, though, you're missing the actual twist. The ring- or donut-shaped coins of pre-colonial Yap were absolutely not pocket change. The stone coins of Yap ranged from 1 to 4 meters in diameter, or 12 feet cross the middle in freedom numbers. Without influence from mainland currency systems, Yap's coin developed in a distinct way. Local entrepreneurs would go on expeditions to stone quarries on other islands and carve out giant coins, known to them as rye stones, for use back at home. The size and quality of the coins helped determine their relative value, second only to the challenge and danger of their acquisition. Yet, obviously, they were massive. Too massive, in fact, to ever change hands in any literal sense. Once a stone coin was hauled ashore and rolled into a suitable place, it never moved again. There were no ledgers or tally marks, either. These stones were owned and traded entirely on group consensus. Whenever a large deal was struck, it was public knowledge what changed hands and where. The exchange was made in public, and anyone involved or adjacent spread the word. They told two friends, and they told two friends, and soon enough, a majority of the community had updated their mental ledgers. In villages of several hundred to a thousand, a consensus of knowledge on who owned which was kept surprisingly well. It was common knowledge, literally, who owned, say, the large coin on the west path, or the medium coin by Steve's house, or the undersea coin a few hundred feet offshore that nobody's ever actually seen. That last one is very real, and very important. Not the Steve one, Steve has been cash insolvent for decades, I mean the undersea one. That wasn't an exaggeration. On at least one confirmed occasion, a large stone on its way back from the quarry was hit by storms and knocked loose from its raft into the waters below, only to be accepted into circulation without any issue. The men who brought it back vouched for its size, quality, and location, and it became another coin in the economy, sight unseen. It has since been spotted and photographed by divers in recent years, but it was never necessary. It was added to the market by consensus and kept tracked by consensus. The crypto parallel here is well-loved and well-worn. A decentralized proof-of-work currency with a non-corporeal ledger that tracked the ownership of tokens rather than their possession. The community of Yap was its own stone blockchain, spreading transactions gradually through human nodes until the consensus was updated. A deal done off the books was not a deal done. The digital age has taken the same premise and used technology to scale it up and reduce the room for error. Digital nodes propagate consensus impossibly fast by comparison, and without any telephone game degradation. There were some great observations to be had in the earlier days of crypto, namely that for outsiders, the great obstacle to understanding Bitcoin was the fact that all crypto is on the metaphorical ocean floor. Newcomers and critics couldn't comprehend or just couldn't tolerate the fact that every so-called coin was judged and traded in absentia, with nothing to hold in their hands. Speaking as someone who has asked to explain blockchain to family members at least once per holiday, it's that expectation of blind faith in the unseeable and intangible that so many can't tolerate. What good is proof of ownership of a thing if it isn't a real thing? But nowadays more than ever, that blind spot frustrates me. How little hard cash do any of us handle on any given day? How much of our liquid assets at any moment are actual, physical tokens of substance in our possession. I can't help but think that the same people who hate the idea of an intangible coin have been living off of intangible coins since well before their first smartphone banking app. But I suppose that's neither here nor there. The point is that the blockchain model was only as novel and confusing as we make it, and an allegory like the Island of Stone Money was perfect for demystifying the concept. But for sake of simplicity, I used a very streamlined overview of the story. There's a bit more to the bigger picture of Yap and its proto-blockchain than I really let on. After the break, I'd like to tell you what I missed and what I think I got wrong.
0: Nexo is the go-to platform for all things crypto. Invest in the hottest coins out there and start earning risk-free interest of up to 20% APR, paid out daily. Need cash, ASAP, but don't wanna sell? Use your crypto as collateral and receive a credit line at premium rates. Open your Nexo account by March 31st and receive up to a $100 welcome bonus. Get started today at Nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O dot I-O. Rejects Galactic Wrestling League is a play-to-earn, turn-based fighting game boasting a unique collection of fighters, all with their own special moves, strengths, weaknesses, and artwork. With an inaugural drop on March 31st, there's still time to get in early. Find out more at Rejects.com. That's Rejects, starting with a W, like wrestling.com.
1: So, I've recapped the familiar parts of the island of stone bitcoins, but now we need to go off the beaten path. What many thinkpiece authors, including myself, failed to mention was that the stone coins in their heyday were deflationary. Brutally so. As skill, labor, and sheer ambition grew, so did the actual stones that were being brought back. Over the course of a few generations, the smaller coins were rendered largely extinct, as expeditions only focused on bigger and better rye stones every time. It soon reached a point at which most stones were such high-value items that they had no practical day-to-day use as currency, and typical goods were being traded simply through barter. That's right, deflation, inconvenience of use, and general hoarding turned stone coins from an ambitious currency into little more than a value-storing commodity. Take from that what you will. Stranger still, that deflationary crisis came to an abrupt end in the 1800s, when foreign influences started coming ashore. With growing access to quality metal tools and equipment from European and Asian travelers, the cutting and shaping of rye stones got dramatically easier overnight. That's right, new special-purpose equipment dramatically changed the process of mining new coins. Do you, uh, do you see where I'm going with this? The rapid production of new and impeccably tidy stone coins flooded the market and created rapid inflation as the now plentiful currency lost value. A schism ultimately grew between the newer, cheap stone coins entering the market and the older, more storied coins that had maintained their value over many years. They effectively became two different currencies, as the branch, or fork, of newer and more labor-efficient altcoins disrupted their local economy. The parallels are incredibly striking, to say the least, but what you make of that is up to you. The question of bad decisions, or rather, strange decisions, came a bit later. In my original overview, I described a turning point in early 20th century Yap. The island's new German owners arrived, and began demanding improved roads and infrastructure. The people of Yap did not particularly care. Their stone footpaths had worked fine for generations, and they had no interest in appeasing their presumptive absentee overlords. The Germans wanted to compel the locals, but had no practical way of levying taxes. So in a stroke of odd genius... They traveled the islands, painting enormous black marks on the largest coins. A big black X or a German cross, depending on who's telling the story. The financial assets of the island's wealthiest residents had now been seized. Or were they frozen? Or maybe it was more of a lean? Regardless, what matters is that it worked. The people of Yap complied with their demands and cleared the way for the new roads. The Germans, satisfied with the results, washed away the marks and declared the coins returned. It's a great story about the shared mythology of money. That the use, values, and honestly the very concept of money are all dependent on our mutual faith in the rules of the game. In many ways, it only works so long as we all agree that it works. When those rules develop organically over generations, it becomes difficult to think beyond them. But that is where I missed a step, and many people who have told this story have done the same thing. It's a wonderful twist ending to show that the rules of the money were ultimately used against the culture that followed them but it reeks of ethnocentrism to treat the people of Yap as ignorant or gullible folks that were blindly following a particular belief system. They were a community with a system that worked for them, a consensus on how that system was handled, and an armed group of colonialist interlopers were making demands of them. It's impossible to dismiss that imbalance of power and the potential for retribution underpinning those demands. You simply cannot remove the element of coercion from this story. It's impossible to know how much of their compliance was a staunch adherence to their currency rules, and how much was biased by the potential threat of force. Old-fashioned economic models tend to treat human beings as robotic decision makers, bound by the goal of best possible outcome under the exact rules of the economy. Coercion, however, is a force multiplier. It's entirely possible that the veiled threat of the German demands turned their usurping of the local consensus of the coins into sort of a stone attack. This is all wild academic speculation, and a lot of word salad, but recent events have given this new context under a new light. Over the last several weeks, many mainstream news sources have reported that crypto addresses tied to so-called Canadian Freedom Convoy fundraising were being frozen or even seized by Canadian authorities. Mark Jeftovic, writing for Zero Hedge, had to point out that no, they did not freeze, much less seize, any crypto wallets, because they can't, unless we choose to let them. Like some kind of fiscal vampires, authorities can do very little to blockchains unless they are officially invited into their homes. All of their approaches require complicit faith on the part of the users. They can order the freezing of accounts held on compliant exchanges, for example. They can flag crypto addresses as frozen de facto and order exchanges not to do business with them. They can, in so many words, only exert force on funds that have voluntarily been placed under their rule set. The government can paint black marks on all the coins they want, but at the end of the day, what matters is whether or not their holders have agreed to play by those rules. And, just like the islands of Yap, those who comply may not end up doing so out of genuine free will. Even at its most benevolent, every state holds the monopoly on violence, and a broad arsenal of consequences. The specter of coercion always looms near when any individual submits to state authority. That got uncomfortably preachy, yeah, but... It's an uncomfortable subject. I like to talk about bad decisions and foolish biases and all that, but sooner or later, we all make some bad decisions not from stupidity of choice, but from the illusion of choice. Sometimes we play by the rules out of fairness to the game, and sometimes we play by somebody else's rules out of fear of what we could lose. When I first saw it, the story of the stone coins was a great lesson for teaching Bitcoin. Revisiting it today, it holds several new lessons to teach us about the future. Little things, like the impracticality of a currency that keeps turning into an equity investment. And big things, like the dilemma of volunteering to play by the rules of the wider financial world. Well-organized exchanges have brought convenience, accessibility, and a broader sense of legitimacy to cryptocurrency. But at the cost of turning the bankless, independent money into something that depends on corporate crypto banking to use it as money. A small decision to embrace that convenience today could become a coerced decision to embrace those black painted marks somewhere down the line. Thanks for listening. As always, I need to remind you that every one of my job titles comes with the word armchair. If you're an expert and you're hearing me get it wrong, I'd like to hear from you. You've been listening to Speaking of Bitcoin. If you have any questions or comments, you can send George
0: an email at george at speakingofbitcoin.show. This episode featured music by Gertie Beats and Jared Rubens with editing by George and Adam. Thanks for listening.